Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, uh, lords, ladies and gentlemen. Um, my name is Giles Wiggs. I'm uh, from the School of Geography here, and uh, it's my great pleasure to welcome you to Rhodes House today for this symposium on the future of cities, which we hope will be one of a series of annual symposia um, during the time of Lord Foster's position as uh, visiting professor in geography um, and environment. Um, we have four distinguished speakers today who will be picking up on two of the themes which Lord Foster <laughs> focused on um, in his lecture yesterday evening. Um, that is the future of energy in the urban environment and the future of cities. Um, the speakers will be talking for the first uh, hour of this symposium, uh, after which we'll have refreshments in the room at the back of the hall, um, and then we will have time for about an hour's worth of discussion. So I'd be grateful if you could hold back on questions and comments that you might have for the speakers um, until that time. Um, so I'd like to begin by introducing to you the chair for this afternoon's discussion, which is Dr. David Howard, who is Director of Research in the Department of Continuing Education at the University of Oxford, um, and also the Director of the MSc in Sustainable Urban Design. David. Thank you very much, Giles. Um, it was a pleasure to see you all here. Uh, without further ado, I'll introduce our first speaker. It's Professor John Ockenden. He's a professor of mathematics, and he's the director of the Oxford Centre for Collaborative Applied Mathematics. He's also the co-director of the programme on solar energy uh, at the Oxford Martin School. Uh, since the 1970s, uh, uh, Professor Ockenden has really led the, the link with knowledge transfer, if you will, between uh, innovative mathemat mathematical ideas and uh, their application to real-world uh, problems. So he started in a background from fluid uh, mechanics and has really interwove academic and industrial research over the last uh, few decades, and particularly focusing on uh, issues of, of uh, boundary, uh, path and boundary issues. His work has looked at lens, lens design, fiber manufacture, and uh, particularly work on semiconductor device modeling. And today he'll be talking to us, uh, I think, on his current research. Thank you very much, and it's a great pleasure to address this, uh, this company. And I'm very, very pleased uh, to have, this is my first um, encounter of the interface between mathematics and architecture, which is a very badly developed interface, and let's hope that this can do something to remedy that situation. So I, it is rather strange for me to be a mathematician, I think, talking to you here, and um, having heard the tour de force from Lord Foster last night, I do feel very humble, but when I look back at the things he was saying, many, many of them did have um, they posed serious mathematical challenges if you really wanted to understand the phenomena that were going on. So what I want to do for my 15 minutes is quickly tell you of about of a few encounters that I've had where mathematics has shed light on issues in urban energy. So um, that's uh, the centre that I, I actually I retired last um, month and so I'm no longer the director in fact but I'm still very involved. Um, I put this slide up because the centre is actually funded by um, KAUST, the uh, King Abdullah University of Science and Technology in Jeddah which is, um, which is very relevant to this gathering because this is a university which was built from scratch over a period of two years in a desert environment and maybe that's something we could talk about a little more later. But it is a sort of MIT of Saudi Arabia, and it's very interesting to how, they, how you create an effective university environment in, in, a, in the desert. Um, and that's me. Right, so let me start off with um, problems in utilization, direct and indirect, where I have seen mathematics put to work. And way back in the um, 60s and 70s when I started working on mathematics and industry and ever since we have had problems from utility companies, in particular gas but also electricity and, and water companies, about faults in pipelines and, and more general networks. And these are an ongoing source of irritation to almost all urban energy uh, purveyors, I think, when something goes wrong, some inhomogeneity, some, inhomogeneity, some fault develops in the system 
and you've got to try to detect where it is. Now this is always a mathematical problem. You usually have a mathematical model for how the system is working in ideal conditions and then something goes wrong and you've then got to work backwards from to see where the imperfection has arisen in the model. And I mention this as an area of intense activity in mathematics because whenever you work backwards in mathematics, it's very nice that I can predict how the sound is going from my, my mouth to your ears very easily. But if, um, if you didn't know I was standing here and you heard some sound coming, would you know where I was and what I was doing? Those are forward and backward problems, and the latter is very much harder than the former. And it requires great mathematical ingenuity, use of stochastic ideas, and and generally turning a badly posed problem into a good one. So that's why I've mentioned those. Um, now the second one I've cited here is one very, which was highlighted by Lord Foster yesterday. If you remember his pictures of his arrows, how the wind towers sent the wind down and out through the building. Um, to, he said, as he rightly said, you can only analyze those flows using computational fluid dynamics, but the computational fluid dynamics can be very difficult to do accurately and reliably. And here is a slide from a friend of mine who's professor of maths in Cambridge, and we are trying to foster links with Cambridge. I hope you don't mind me showing this. And I believe these engineers do sometimes make buildings that stand up. And here is a building they've built in San Francisco, which is um, designed to make the occupants as comfortable as possible during heat waves. So it's facing the ocean, and the crucial feature is the air flowing through, um, through the windows, which uh, you see on the right there. And the key, the key mechanism that is controlling the comfort of the occupants is the, is the operation of these windows. The building is also largely built of concrete as a thermal barrier. And just to show you, um, now this is a, the, a, quite, a, quite a carefully constructed, tailor-built CFD code for that configuration. To show you, um, I don't want to go into any details, but the, the big peaks at the top of the outside temperature hitting highs and BMS is the building management system and um, you may have the, the people inside open the windows willy-nilly which is the green one but the number two is the good one where the informed users are using what they should do in accordance with BMS and you can see that the um, peaks are brought down by um, four or five degrees or more by using this system but to get those sort of results you can't just doing, do it using a standard commercial code. You have to have tailor-made one. Um, more generally, if you're looking at uh, energy usage in the urban environment, obvious problems are traffic control, whether it's trains or cars or people or planes. If you want to move things around in an efficient way and make maximum use of whatever, whatever roads or railway tracks or runway space that you have, these are really important and large optimization problems which require very clever mathematical ideas to look for optimum schedules in a, in a landscape where there may be many, many possibilities and you, you have to design your codes to make sure you find the, the right optimum. And um, in particular these days aircraft and air traffic control is very crucially dependent on codes for stacking planes and for scheduling them as they take off along the runways. Um, I've mentioned failures in electricity grids, don't let me say anything more about that. But um, I, there have been many schemes in the UK for light railways and for automated vehicles moving along tracks. There was a plan for Cardiff not long ago where mathematicians were called in to help design the actual um, roadway system on which these vehicles would work. They're robotic, but they're not free to roam, roam in two dimensions as Lord Foster's were. They were going on tracks, but you optimize the design of the track. The last thing I want to say anything really about is energy generation. Um, fuel cells obviously have been around for a long time and there's a lot of membrane modeling been going on there which has been highly effective, especially carried out in the US and Canada. The one I'm most interested in, and I was very pleased that uh, Lord Foster showed that solar cells really are the way to go in the absence of nuclear anyway, 
um, is uh, solar cells. Now, silicon cells, which are mostly used these days, are very expensive, and it's very important to find um, cheaper cells which can have an efficiency of at least 5%, maybe 7 or 8 and I don't think it's an exaggeration to say at the moment this is a black art. There are people in laboratories all over the world mixing up polymeric materials, titanium oxides, dye sensor, putting little bits of dye in to sensitize the interface between the polymer and the titanium, whatever it is, and you mix it and stir it and you put it in the sunlight and see what efficiency you get. That's more or less the state of the art. And so it's rather like semiconductors were in the days of transistor radios, that people did the same sort of thing there with semiconductors, and then theories were developed, and now it's very easy to design a, a semiconductor to do whatever you want, but it's not at all easy to design a solar cell that's polymeric or disensitized. And um, I must show you one thing about mathematics. Uh, so. Um, Okay, so you've got your solar cells, you can put them on the roof of your house, but you might be out in the desert and you want to collect the solar energy, say, with a paraboloidal reflector. And here you could imagine the sun, if, that's, if those reflectors are pointing at the sun, they're really efficient collectors. All the rays pass through the focus of the parabola, which is rotated to make these paraboloids. Now, um, this is a subject which I was introduced to, to by my, the next speaker, Malcolm McCulloch, and he, he said, what happens if the sun isn't quite, is moving around the sky? Well, you can either tilt the, these reflectors to follow the sun, but that's a very expensive and dirt can get into the works and things like that. Um, how much energy do you lose by just having it fixed, the reflector, and, and just seeing what happens when the sun isn't quite sending its rays along the axis of the parabola? And um, I'm, I haven't got a blackboard here, but so you could imagine the rays coming down and all bouncing off the parabola and passing through a point where the little black solar cell is. Now, if the sun isn't quite coming along the axis, well, the rays, they don't all go through a point anymore after bouncing, but they actually, they envelop a curve which goes around the point. So if you can imagine a curve, which is called a cubic curve, with the, what was the focus of the parabola in a little loop in the, in the curve. That was all, that's a quite an interesting result, which puzzles a lot of mathematicians. But you've got to do it in three dimensions, and the surface of the caustic curve, we call it, is a really fascinating surface, which is called a hyperbolic umbilic, and is the subject of research among geometers and people who do catastrophe theory. Um, that's more or less all I want to say. Could I just end by... Uh, there are plenty of other urban issues where mathematics is used. I just cite some ones I've been involved with. I'd just like to say that burglary, for example, is something that happens in cities in a very much more predictable way than in, in the countryside, and it can be modelled quite well using analogies with epidemiology. Uh, gunfire detection, I'd better not say anything about that. Spectrum allocation. The only other thing I'd mention is the structural mechanics and the civil engineering side of things, which Lord Foster mentioned a lot during his talk. But it's because, it is pretty apparent, I think, that the architects do rely on the civil engineers to get things right. And the civil engineers rely on, largely on their codes to get things right and the codes rely on the mathematical modelling being right. And so I do think that underneath a lot of what Lord Foster said yesterday, there is this basic need for mathematics as, as a quality control on the whole operation. And I couldn't mention, resist mentioning dune invasion. If we're going to be in the desert, there are quite a lot. I don't think Mazdar is in a dune area, is it? But uh, there are communities who are, certainly in Saudi Arabia, where sand dunes advance towards the city, and you want to be able to stop that. So I, I, um, I mentioned that as my last topic. There's a reference there to a group at, uh, at University College London who very much look at these kind of issues. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. Um, well, to em embody the uh, synthesis between uh, mathematics and uh, engineering, it's a great pleasure to introduce our second speaker, Dr. Malcolm McCulloch, uh, Malcolm is the director of the Electrical Power Group at the Department of Engineering Science here at Oxford. He's also the director of the Institute for Carbon Energy Reduction in Transport. 
Um, Malcolm has three key research uh, avenues he's been following. Firstly, within transport, he's done a lot of work on hydrogen and electrical-powered vehicles, uh, has worked with Morgan in producing a, a, a hydrogen-powered car with Morgan. He's also worked extensively on the domestic energy sector and been involved with smart uh, metering um, and the feedback uh, of, of that smart metering process. He's also worked with renewable energies, particularly tidal flows, and out of his... Uh, involvement in research and also uh, industry, he's uh, founded and is now the non-executive director of three companies which address his three research interests, those companies being Novotas, Yasa and Kepler Energy. So it's a great pleasure to hand over now to uh, Malcolm. Thank you. Lords, ladies and gentlemen. So I'm going to start off on thinking about some of the drivers to energy in the environment and just at a very simple level. And then I'm going to give you two thoughts and then two challenges. So the first thing to understand is, where is what is driving the energy use within the, um, within the urban environment? And also the impacts of energy, which I think is the more important question to ask. Firstly, we know it's all about population. Not only is the population increasing, but it's also becoming richer and it's also becoming more urban. And both of the, all the three of those mean that the, uh, the uh, energy consumption is increasing. Secondly, it's about the way the energy is generated. And this world is fixated on using the large-scale, single-source points or, or point source of energy creation, such as the nuclear power stations. What we, the challenge is to move to a more distributed energy collection system with the associated problems as, uh, with that. The third area is an area of how do we use energy and how do we use it effectively. And I think Norman Foster and his, uh, and his companies have been iconic in the way that they've thought about that very cleverly, especially in the area of ventilation and cooling. So the two thoughts that I want to bring through is to say that one of the big challenges that we have as a society is that we are energy blind. So to give you an interesting question is to say which uses more energy? a TV on standby for 24 hours, or a shower for 10 seconds. So, an energy, so the energy consumption of a TV for 24 hours, or showering for 10 seconds. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to talk to the person next to you and say which one do you think it is. Now that's quite a tricky question, and if we can't readily, oh, just let's say, how many people think it's the shower? How many think it's the TV? Well, it's a cheat. They both consume about the same amount of energy. <laughs> but what that does do is it shows that actually things like heating, heating things up is actually to consumes a lot of energy. And one of the interesting questions is to say that if we're going to be talking about changing behavior, we have to understand what the impacts of our behavioural change is going to be. And that's absolutely key. And this is what I mean by energy blindness. If we don't know what we're doing, how the dickens are we expected to change our behaviour? So one of the areas that I've been working on substantially is looking at how do we provide the right information to people so that they can start to make the behavioural change. And to me, it, I used a, a, a simple example is that in my motor vehicle, it has a little dial there which says what my miles per gallon is or my least per hundred kilometers is. And I can use that quite effectively of saying, okay, that's how much energy I'm consuming for the distance I'm traveling. I then make the decision whether I put the, you know, you know, accelerate hard and brake hard if I want to, but I can also go gently and you know, improve my, um, uh, my fuel economy. The challenge is to say, how do you take that concept into a building? Or in, in my case, I specifically looked in the domestic environment, you no longer just have one action, you have up to 150 actions that you could be taking to actually change your energy behaviour. So what we started to look at is to say, we wanted to look at identifying how much energy is each appliance using so that you can start to uh, get a, a good feel for how much uh, energy each activity is taking. 
The problem that one can then get into is, is, is information overload, so we, we try and compact that into types of activities, and we also highlight what the top five activities are, and we can also provide information to users to say, this is the, the, the simple type of changes we can make to make a substantial difference. A nice example, while we were doing some of the trials, we went to one of the homes and said, um, okay, which of you, uh, if there were just two people living in the home, say, which of you has a 20-minute shower? And they both said, no, we both have five-minute showers. And, the, and we get back to says, but we know one of you takes a 20-minute shower. You know, what's going on here? And then it has transpired that the one person put their hand in the shower, realized it was cold, went off to go and make a cup of tea, had their cup of tea, went back, and had a five-minute shower. That change and the recognition of that saved them a third of their, energy, of their electrical energy consumption. Another classic one is, the, is what I call the beer fridge. You know, people have the old fridge that they have. They don't want to throw it away. They put it into the garage. They then start to store the beer in that that can take something between 20 and 25% of the energy consumption in the home. And once you recognize that it happens, you can make a very simple uh, change to the way that you do things, and it can make a significant difference. So that's thought number one. Thought number two is I think there's an, uh, I'm now talking about an area that we're starting to move into, and that is what I think is a key area of thermal management. And this is about saying that in, in the electrical sense, in the domestic sense, in the buildings, we can be very good at managing the way we use electrical energy because we have got a very good distribution system with, uh, within a building. We don't have a distribution system for thermal management. So therefore, one of the interesting things is to start to have a look back and recognize that one has different types of activities where you need temperatures at different levels, so such as at you know, minus 18 degrees, you, you need something for freezing, zero degrees for refrigeration, 40 degrees for washing, 100 degrees for boiling, 200 degrees for cooking. So the question is, quite often what we do is we have a refrigerator which uh, produces a minus 18 degrees, then throws out the heat into, into the room, and then an air conditioner then takes that, uh, that heat out, out of the system. Why not start to think more about an integrated system where one can actually start to use the energy from one activity instead of wasting it, actually use it and capture it and store it as another form of energy, which can then be used. One of the interesting and I think exciting sidelines, uh, uh, an unexpected uh, benefit of this, is actually thermal storage is a heck of a lot cheaper than any other form of storage of energy. And therefore thermal storage could well be an important part to play in this. You throw in a bit of smarts and you can quite easily see how that type of activity can really integrate into smart grid to, to actually have a significant impact into not only the gas consumption, but for instance, electrical consumption within, a, within an area. So that's thought number two. Two challenges. The first challenge is if you look around you, this building is, is fantastic in that it's got very thick walls, it's really great, but if you look outside, and you look through the lovely windows, you'll realize one thing very quickly. One is, is that a single glazed window. Secondly, you'll realize that it's actually probably only a three mil glazing. And thirdly, you'll realize that some of the glass around in this place is, say, for instance, from the 18th and 19th century. So it's really old glass. So the challenge that we face, is, especially in, this, in a place like Oxford, is to say, how do we sympathetically uh, transform the energy consumption of these very old buildings? Some of you may be especially aware of the dinner last night is that we're in a beautiful building, but sometimes it was blooming chilly. Okay? And I think you would recognize that. And, and so for us, it's going to be a real challenge is how do you transform the stock of really old buildings to be energy efficient? But one doesn't necessarily need to have a look at the old buildings that go back from the 16th and 17th century. We also know in the post-war period that a significant amount of the housing was built with single skin uh, single skin uh, walls and therefore those alone consume a substantial amount of energy but they also tend to be in areas where people are not that affluent and therefore the challenge is going to be how do we transform those buildings to be energy efficient at, uh, but, and yet be cost effective at the same time and sympathetic to the his historical context that we have and that to me is going to be a big challenge. The second challenge, it is going to be a challenge to, to uh, taking an example from the automotive industry, of which I've done quite a lot of work. And to me, one of the iconic designers in the automotive industry was Ferdinand Pierre. 
He was the person who produced Porsche and, and created the 911 and had a really beautiful iconic style. But he was also the person that produced one of the longest, uh, the longest and, and uh, longest living and most selling vehicles, and that's the VW Beetle. And his legacy will be remembered in the future, not only of the beautiful, iconic vehicle of the Porsche, but also of the vehicle that the everyday person could use and could, could actually exploit some of the great design challenges that he made in producing that vehicle. And therefore, one of the challenges to an architectural firm as yourself is to say, yes, we need to do those iconic buildings, but how do we transform the buildings that are useful for every person? Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, Malcolm. Uh, we'll move on to our third speaker now, uh, which is Professor Steve Rayner. Uh, Steve is the James Martin Professor of Science and Civilization at Side Business School, where he also directs the Institute for Science, Innovation, and Society. He's also been directing, as a, as a leading uh, the, the PI, the, pri um, the first primary investigator, the Oxford Programme for the Future of Cities. And this programme at the moment is bringing together research within Oxford and out with Oxford uh, and bringing together current uh, research matters. He has uh, previously headed the Economic and Social Research Council's Science and Society Programme and had previous posts uh, in the USA where he worked for the last two decades at Columbia University and also as a chief social scientist at the International Research Institute for Climate Prediction. Uh, he describes himself as an undisciplined scholar in the best possible sense and was recently voted or listed as one of the 15 people that the US president should listen to. So uh, we're all ears now and will hopefully soon be all visuals as well. Um. Uh, this afternoon, in the, the short time available to me, I'm going to talk a little bit about the future of cities in three objects. And this is the first. Last night in his Tour de Force lecture, we, we were shown the, the picture of a street in Abu Dhabi, which was marked by large concrete and glass skyscrapers in a desert environment. And Lord Foster remarked, of course, that this is not a sustainable architectural urban form for that environment. But of course, this is the culprit. It's the air conditioner. The air conditioner, as a piece of mundane, everyday kit, has been an enormously beneficial innovation during the second half of the 20th century for many people. It's not widely known that British diplomats in Washington, DC, used to receive hardship pay up until the 1940s because they had to weather the inclement summers of Washington, D.C., which can be very humid and unpleasant, until air conditioning was installed in the British Embassy there. The sleepy little city of Atlanta, Georgia, only mushroomed into becoming the New York of the South due to the fact that people could avail themselves of the benefits of air conditioning. On the other hand, what we have to bear in mind, that this same technology has brought about a different kind of revolution in architecture worldwide, in large part because of the kind of standardization of the indoor environment that this technology has enabled. We have also seen a standardization of the built environment more generally that where once buildings were constructed precisely as we were shown last night with the wind towers in Lord Foster's lecture, where buildings were precisely constructed in order to take advantage of natural cooling processes, those became abandoned because of the ability to rely on this bit of kit. So some of you may be, for example, familiar with the, uh, the Queenslander house in Eastern Australia. It's a masterpiece of design, very wide eaves, the house is built on stilts, air circulation all around the building. Since the advent of the air conditioner, two things have happened. People who already own Queenslander houses have filled in the ground floor and made it a two-story house. 
and people who haven't have started building the sort of bog-standard suburban house that you find all across the United States, Europe, and the rest of the world. Now, one of the things that Malcolm just referred to was the beer fridge. And I think this is something that we have to take very seriously when we think about innovation and energy innovation for sustainability. Humankind today still uses as much biomass as it did 100 years ago. In fact, humanity has only ever given up one energy source in its history. Do you know what it is, anybody? Sperm whale oil. And it wasn't because we were running out of sperm whales. It was because we had a readily available, cheaper substitute in the form of kerosene that we could put into the same bit of kit, the same oil lamp, to burn it. And one of the problems we have on a global scale is the equivalent of Malcolm's beer fridge. It's how do you get the dirty technologies out of the bottom of the pile when you're putting the clean ones in at the top? And I put it to you that the Mazdar example is a bold experiment in creating innovation at the top of the energy system. But we've still got a very long way to go if we're going to start to get all the multitudinous manifestations of this bit of kit out of homes and buildings around the world. It's a really major challenge. We are faced with the challenge of technological lock-in, which is going to be a major challenge in transforming our cities. Here's the second bit of kit. Lord Foster last night talked a great deal about energy. He talked rather less about water, which I found, I must say, a little bit puzzling given the location of the city in the desert. But I want to draw your attention to another case of technical lock-in, socio-technical lock-in here, exemplified by the flushing toilet. This is the global standard, well, not this particular model, obviously, but the siphon-operated flushing toilet is the global standard for sanitation around the world. It's what everybody aspires to, it's what we aspire to put into developing countries. It came into being quite by accident. There were moves in the Industrial Revolution to put some of the foul sewers that were on the surface underground, largely because of the smells and unsightliness. Famous London Great Stink. Somewhat independently of that, there were other people involved in public health who wanted to put piped water into cities in order to avoid waterborne diseases such as typhus and cholera. And a gentleman by the name of Thomas Crapper came up with this bit of gear which linked those two independently conceived systems together and inexorably bound together our system for providing drinking water with our system for managing human waste. Think about it for a moment. Who in their right minds would have designed a system whereby we purify billions of gallons of water to potable quality to flush toilets with? Nobody. Consider for a moment, 40% of the water supply to New York City that leaves the water purification plants leaks out of pipes before it gets into the home. And the, of the remaining water that gets into the home, 40% of that is used for pulling the handle on this bit of kit here, for flushing the toilet. Clearly, we are locked into an unsustainable system on a global scale. This is an interesting case, however, because it's one of the rare cases where it seems to me, at least, that the challenges for some of the wealthiest people on the planet coincide with the interests of some of the poorest. As we see the development of, of human populations urbanizing in water-stressed areas, I'm particularly more familiar with Southern California uh, than I am with the Emirates, but clearly there's a strong incentive there to look for alternative ways of providing drinking water and handling waste, human waste, where people can actually afford to pay for the development of that technology. And the potential benefits of such a technology to the very poor, who currently are not locked into any system of water supply and waste handling whatsoever. Interesting time. Here's my third object. It's a Cam I, think it's a, I think it's a Camden Borough, if I'm not mistaken. Traffic warden. Perhaps some of the Londoners here will be able to correct me on that. Why is he here? Well, he's here because I think 
what was missing for me in last night's otherwise fascinating and wide-ranging lecture was the issue of governance. And I've chosen a traffic warden to represent governance because he's a rather ambiguous character. Uh, this one is clearly employed by a private company, National, <coughs> National Car Parks, NCP. He's appointed by a local authority, a state, an organ of the state. Uh, he's not a policeman. However, he is there to perform inspection functions and to have some kind of regulatory uh, functions. And so I think he's the best I could come up with uh, to represent some of the challenges and problems of governance. And what struck me about Mazdar, as presented last night, and it's not a case I know in sufficient detail uh, really to speak authoritatively, but on the basis of last night's presentation, I was struck by the absence of politics within the city. I'm sure there's lots of politics about the city, but I mean the politics of the citizens themselves. I'm slightly better acquainted with another example of a new city which makes claims to sustainability. That's Lavaza in India. Uh, this is a city which is being constructed by Hindustan Construction, and it has been their intention to cut through a lot of the governance issues that beset the management of Indian cities by the establishment of a uh, form of government through US-style mayors, who will be installed basically by the developer. Now, what strikes me about this situation is that sounds like a radical innovation for dealing with a lot of the problems that we know are familiar with governance in India, corruption and so on and so forth, competing interests. And maybe that's fine for the young, upcoming middle-class people who are buying into this utopian community. But I wonder what's going to happen over time as their kids become teenagers, um, as they themselves change their aspirations. And perhaps the behavior and the aspirations of the citizens won't fit with the initial vi original vision. How is that going to be managed? Indeed, how is, it going to, how is the situation going to be managed in Mazdar when somebody decides, actually, you know, 30 degrees isn't what I want. I want to be really cool because I like it that way. So I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy a window air conditioner and stick it in to this system. Is that something which is going to be permitted? And if not, then what's to prevent the proliferation of people subverting the very elegant kinds of ventilation system that uh, Lord Foster has designed uh, for the city. And this is a common problem, which is the mismatch in the way in which people behave and the technological affordances of the systems that are designed in order to produce real goods for those people. So I think these complex issues of governance are ones that we have to take very seriously if we're going to be thinking imaginatively and creatively, as Lord Foster has done, about the future of city in technological terms. Because ultimately, technologies are social systems mediated by materials and devices. We can't just reduce them to buildings and gadgets. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Steve. Um, we'll now introduce our fourth and final speaker um, for this first session. It's a great pleasure to introduce Professor David Bannister. Uh, David is Professor of Transport Studies here at the University of Oxford and is Director of the Transport Studies Unit. Uh, until recently, he was the acting head of the Environmental Change Institute and is a core member of the Future of Cities program here at Oxford. He is a leading researcher internationally on urban transport matters and is advisor to multiple international governments and agencies. His three key areas of research, among, among many others really, but uh, presently he's been working on policy scenario building, where he's made innovative use of backcasting to understand both present and future trends. He's particularly concerned in reducing the need to travel uh, uh, through pricing and planning initiatives, and also has been working on the impact of climate change and energy consumption pat patterns, particularly vis-a-vis uh, -vis low carbon cities. So a great pleasure to, to welcome you here, David. Thank you. Esteemed audience, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Coming forth, um, I always think that everybody has said anything that is actually useful to be said. But my presentation is completely different to the other three we've had, which is, uh, well, I'll leave you to decide what that means. But where I start from is that our understanding of cities is rather poor. Cities are very complex systems. 
and they're very much organic in their nature, as we were hearing a little bit towards the end of what Steve was saying. And they tend to grow organically from bottom upwards rather than top downwards. And they shape, and the shape and size of those cities result from a whole range of intensive competition for space. Space is at a premium within cities. And I believe that there is going to be, there is happening a renaissance in cities, but cities of a very substantially larger scale than the cities that we've been talking about uh, so far. Um, what I want to do is just talk around three sorts of, of issues. One is about population and the fantastic speed, the scale of change that goes with that. The second is issues relating to, to global risk, to issues such as, as climate change, but also to issues relating to urban planning and, as we've also heard just now, about governance. Uh, issues of density and sprawl within cities. Have we got the organisational structures that are appropriate to that sort of development? The different sorts of polycentric development or concentrated decentralisation. Uh, development seen as investment rather than just as profit, but seen as something which is actually there. But I think to illustrate this population growth, if we look at, if this thing works at the, oh, right, at the bottom graphic there, in 1900, 13% of the world's population lived in cities, about a quarter of a billion people out of a total global population of 1.8 billion. 2000, it was 47%. 2030, 60%, it was likely to be, and 70% by 2050. Six billion people in cities, which was equivalent to the total world population in 2000. So the rate of growth is phenomenal. And if we look at the sorts of cities that are now being developed, we can see on the left-hand side here population in 2007. These are the mega cities. I defined as cities that are over 10 million people uh, 10 million population. If we look back at 1950, there were just two megacities in the world. There was New York and Tokyo. Now we have 16 in 2007 on the left-hand side. And if we look at 2025, this is the expected growth in the number of those megacities over 10 million in population. So we will have 26 at that time. Um, the colour reflects to their position in the ranking. Blue is on the, on the wane, orange is on the increase, and red are new entries into the list on the left hand, on the right hand side. But also we need to be aware that the priorities of cities are very different. When we talk about things like environment, the first world cities are concerned about pollution, about levels of consumption, about energy, the sorts of things we've been talking about mainly here. But if we look to the emerging cities, the really, where the growth is really taking place, their priorities are very different. They're looking at trying to raise their income levels, they're looking at health issues, they're looking at how they can get clean water um, and, uh, and electricity and, and that sort of thing. But there is another new phenomenon that's occurring, which are called meta-cities. These are cities that are over 20 million in, in population. It's estimated that by 2020 there will be nine, and I've listed those nine on the right-hand side. And as we can see, it is Tokyo and New York are still there, but it is in the emerging cities, the growing cities of the developing world, or the, maybe the first world in, 20, in 2020, the, that that is actually taking, taking place. And this list is already outdated because the, first, they are, the, the nine aren't the top nine in that list. There are different nine. So this uh, was UN's Habitat's best estimate two years ago. That has already changed, which again illustrates the rate at which these uh, changes are taking place. And then if we look in a slightly uh, different way, and I'll try and get this up as quickly as I can, um, there's a new feature that is also appearing, which is the mega city region. This is where these mega cities and meta cities are coalescing to actually become huge dynamic hubs in the, in the future. And in 2020, in the Asian area, about 60% of the population will be in five of these new regions. And again, if we look at in East Asia, we have an even greater uh, number. And we can see there on the left-hand side, the Shanghai Nanjing area, which will have about 83 million people. 
So that is much more than the population of the whole of this country, the population of Germany. We're talking about in one city region. So that's the sort of scale of the problem that we're actually, um, uh, we're actually looking at. So what are the opportunities here in terms of the sustainable city theme, which is what was the theme of last night's talk? And as I see it, there are sort of three main areas, the economic, social, and environmental. Economic being that cities are the main source of employment, manufacturing and services, knowledge economy, network society. Social, there's issues relating to housing, homelessness, crime, security, poverty. Uh, environment, issues here on energy, pollution, water waste, climate change. And then, in addition to that, I would add the sort of spatial, the urban sprawl density issues, the location of development, the structure of the city, issues relating to pollution and congestion, which are consequent upon that. And also, again, there are the political dimensions, the institutional, organizational, governance aspects that need to be uh, considered. And I like Jane Jacobs' quote, which is now 50 years old, but I feel is, is, is appropriate today as well. Cities are essential crucibles for innovation, tolerance, diversity, novelty, surprise, and economic prosperity. All of those are encapsulated within the city. But cities themselves are dynamic. They're changing into network cities, reconstruction of old cities, investment in new areas. Growth is much, much greater than the rate at which the infrastructure can actually be provided. And that infrastructure includes not just things like housing, but transport and energy and, and water and other issues. So there is a huge problem of coping with this sort of uh, growth. And how can we reconcile that with quality of life, which is also really important in these, in these cities? If we look at the threats then, globalization, I wasn't sure whether to put this as a threat or an opportunity, but cities are now interconnected. There's less barriers. There's industry is much more footloose. It can move, move around between cities. So the status quo is not being held at the present time. The status quo will change, and cities will change as a result of that. So the pecking order which we now have won't be the same order that will happen in the future. But cities are also, or could become, dysfunctional. And this is part of the dynamics here. We have long-distance commutes. We have multi-center cities. We have cities within cities. Cities are made up of different cities. There are limits. What sort of structures can we have that allow some sort of sense in terms of the governance, the organization, the way in which institutions actually work there? How do we actually locate power? Should it be in a central organization? Should it be decentralized? decentralized? How will that actually work if it's decentralized? And also there's this resurgence argument that cities of the east are going to be the ones that are going to begin to take over from the traditional cities of the, of the west. They're the ones with the money. They're the ones that are actually investing huge amount of capital uh, in, in various forms of infrastructure, as we can see from this um, illustration from Shanghai. And also, we heard an example last night from Mumbai, but Mumbai is also a real center that uh, competes with Hollywood now as being the film center. It's a center of literature, it's a center of, of television, and it has a whole real cultural society there which is, is, is growing and is, I think, larger than that in, in, in Hollywood. But also there is the question of, of threats. Many of our great cities are located at sea level, and uh, also many of them are on the estuaries of great rivers and things. And this diagram uh, illustrates the sort of the areas where there is extreme danger and where there is high and medium danger. It comes from the IPCC. But if we look at Bangladesh, 46% of the population there is at risk from being uh, affected by, by flooding and, and, and uh, um, inundation of various kinds. Egypt, 38, and Vietnam, 55%. But it's not just in those cities, it's also in cities that we're much more familiar with that we have this, this threat. If we look at our 19 megacities, 14 of those are at the at coastal or at, 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 at sea level. London is fortunate, it was one of the very sort of prescient, far-sighted decisions that was made uh, and the Thames Barrier was constructed over the period 1974 to 1983. Um, this was designed to look for the 100-year event to protect London. It was built at a cost in 2001 prices of 1.3 billion. 
but it was estimated that the damage potential to buildings, and this excluded uh, the damage to people and, uh, and, and lifestyles and whether business could be carried out, was 30 billion pounds. And in the period, for the first 10-year period from 1986 to 1996, the Thames barrier was lifted 27 times. But in the subsequent 10 years, from 1996 to 2006, it was 66 times that it was actually lifted. When will it be breached? One thing we know is that the water has to go somewhere, and it's exactly where it will actually go. So do we look at this sort of, here's the Thames barrier, the view up, towards the centre of London, this is a simulation of what might actually happen with that sort of sea surge. Some of you may say that that's not, not such a bad idea after all, but uh, there are huge downsides to that sort of, of, of event actually happening. I want to end just with three slides which are more in my own area of, of, of expertise and, and work, and they're really sort of three very closely related questions which I've put here. Are cities for traffic or are cities for people? Who are we actually uh, trying to build or design cities for? The work that we try to do is to looking at ways in which we can encourage proximity by reducing travel distances in cities. We look at ways of clustering services and facilities together so we try and maximize accessibility within the cities. Um, and increasingly beginning to look at who actually owns the streets. Who are the streets actually for? Who actually uh, is the priority user? It's a common resource. Can we look at allocating uh, use by time to different types of user and maintaining that flexibility? And similarly, what about neighborhoods for people? We heard last night about issues relating to permeability of urban areas, but also there are issues relating to the ownership of those areas and the transparency within which th those areas. Then there is the question again, cities of innovation and cities of people. We all know about the problem. These are four pictures which are taken from Delhi. And on the left-hand side is the most familiar picture of, of Delhi. Delhi has one um, uh, BRT, bus rapid transit system, which we can see in the second area, which has made a big, big difference in the vehicles there are, 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 are gas, run on gas. There also then we have the three wheelers, which are an important part of the transport system within Delhi, again using CNG, and they feed into the, um, into, into the bus system. And then we have the cycling. Can we get Delhi to move, in a sense, to reverse the pathway that it's actually following, to move from the car back to the cycle, back to low energy forms of, of, of transport? And finally here is the question of whether, if we're concerned about issues with modernization, does modernization really mean motorization? Is that what people perceive it to be? Because unfortunately one tends to find that the new megacities of the world are emerging not as models of sustainable development or sustainable transport, but as replicas of car-dependent cities of the West rather than having a new model. Thank you. Thank you very much, David, and thank you to the four speakers for presenting their viewpoints and their research on the aspects of the future of energy in the urban environment and the future of cities. So in some ways, they've started the ball rolling, uh, but in many ways, the main work to be done is to be done by the audience and, uh, and the presenters after the tea break. So we'll leave you uh, 30 minutes to gather your thoughts and questions, um, and then we will re reconvene back here in this room at 4 o'clock. Tea is served in the room behind you. Um, and then we'll have an hour's worth of questions uh, to the four presenters. And Lord Foster then will uh, close the afternoon with concluding comments. So uh, do help yourselves to uh, tea and coffee. <laughs>